You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis Day. It is the end of January, and I've got one word for you, Don. Sarcococa. Sarcococa is blooming here in Northern California, and this is one of favorite Lois's favorite generic plant genus names to say. That was hard to say. Yes. Plant genus names to say. Sarcococca. I can guarantee you when we write it down for people or we say it to them, we have to spell it two or three times because of the number of C's and O's in there. S-A-R-C-O-C-O-C-C-A. Sarcococca ruscifolia blooms in the month of January. It has a wonderful spicy fragrance. It's an otherwise just an interesting dark green background shrub for the shade. And it marks one of our seasons here. It's one of those plants that blooms in the middle of the winter with super fragrant flowers. Can you mention another plant that blooms in the middle of the winter with super fragrant flowers? Super fragrant flowers? Yes. No. Daphne odora. Daphne odora is also blooming right now. And uh, of the two, if you want a plant to kill, Daphne. If you want a plant that's easy to grow, Sarcococca. Temperature today as we record this program on January 26, 2022, is going up to a high of 61 degrees. Today we had a good amount of frost this morning and tonight it will be 35 degrees and very likely there will be areas of frost. Open areas will show some frost on certain surfaces and then the day of the broadcast will be 60 degrees. Thursday night 36 degrees. Again 36, 35. We can see frost if it's an open sky and you have a surface that's open to the sky losing heat. So we can expect some frost on Friday morning. Friday will get up to 59 degrees and some actual clouds, kind of thing we haven't seen in a while moving over us. Friday night, 36 degrees. Saturday, mostly sunny, 61 degrees. Honestly, folks, people are not really complaining about all this sunlight, sunshine, but it's getting a little unnerving. Saturday night, patchy fog, 37 degrees. Sunday, 59 degrees with fog in the morning, burning off, and then mostly sunny. Been watching the long-range forecast now for several days. There had been some evidence that this very resilient high-pressure ridge has been blocking all the storms, was going to start to break down, and some storms might come in. The different models that they look at had kind of different outcomes, and so you can see that discussion when you go to the National Weather Service. Look at the extended discussion on the weather forecast for our area. They're now saying the models continue the trend, as they say, of backing off on any precipitation over Northern California Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week, as they had thought we might get some. Currently, we may see some showers over parts of Shasta County late Sunday through Monday. The European model, which is just one of these giant climate models they look at, is slightly wetter. In other words, higher chance of rainfall for us but it keeps the valley dry as well. Uh, Most of the rain on their model going to the north. It is indicating some additional potential for light precipitation over the Sierra Nevada. Clusters have also trimmed back on the depth of the trough. Dry weather is expected to continue with maybe some cooling of temperatures for the mountains. So where we had thought there'd be some rain in the horizon, doesn't look like there is, at least in the current extended forecast. It's an interesting comment by a meteorologist 
looking at this rainfall year. So here in, in the Davis area, we are now at 14.5 inches, which is above average for the time of year substantially. And we're getting pretty up pretty close to our average rainfall of just over 18 inches here in the Davis area. He pointed out December, excuse me, October was about 400% of average. One gigantic, unbelievable rainstorm. November, below average, below 100%. Uh, December, 150% of average. I'm not sure where he was writing from. January, 13% of average. January, we had, what, one storm, I think, that I remember back at the beginning of the month. So for us to get back up, uh, you know, stay above average, recharge those reservoirs, February and March need to come in average, above average, would be great to help us catch up from all those years of drought. Right now, we're at 14.5 inches of rainfall in the Davis area, and the snowpack is good, and the reservoirs are better than they were, but we're still on the edge of drought, kind of, because we need more rainfall February, March, even into April to get back where we should be. Where we should be. Should be is more water in the ground, more water in the reservoirs, more snow in the mountains. Uh, let's talk about one of those great programs here at KDRT. Uh, we like to mention some of the other programming in here on KDRT. Lois, what have you got going on your show for this week, next week, coming up soon? Okay, I have had the most wonderful interview with a fellow named Ray Maxwell. And he is an elder. He's older than I am. And he has. Is that, is that how you define it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, now that I'm this age, that's how I define it. That's right. Um, <laughs> and I met him on that new community that I'm getting involved with called Office Hours, which is a two hour every day question and answer, live question and answer for tech questions about audiovisual stuff. Mm. Fascinating, folks. Lots of fun. And, and I, I met this fellow and I interviewed him on the show. He has done so many things. He's, he's got his own hot air balloon. He teaches people how to fly airplanes or he's a glider. Um, it's just, he made, and this is the one I wanted to, to talk about. He made a, a thing that you could put up in space. It was a camera thing and, and you could photograph a forest as you flew over it. He was hired by the, the Canadian government to do this. And in a satellite, you're looking down and you're photographing things and they could find minerals by looking at the difference in the plants, mm -hmm. that the light from the plants in certain areas. And I, it was fascinating. And I asked him about it, but he said, you know, when you're talking about botany, you got to talk to somebody else. So <laughs> I, I figured, I figured I'd, I'd ask Don. But it, it's so complicated that uh, that I actually won't ask you about it. But okay. I just thought it was it was fascinating. If anybody wants to listen to it, it's on Thursday at eleven, which is just before we're broadcasting this. But it's also replayed Saturday morning at seven. That's when my show is on. That's life. And it's, of course, always archived at kdrt.org. Yes, the talk shows or public affairs programming, as we call it officially here 
is archived forever. You can go back through years of That's Life and the Davis Garden Show at kdrt.org. So I'll have to listen to it, and then maybe I can give an answer to the question about how the vegetation differs so that they're able to make those kind of readings. I do remember years ago they did infrared-type readings with, with aerial reconnaissance, not out in space, and they found that certain crops and certain plants would show different reflectivity than others, and so they could see anomalies. They could determine if a crop wasn't up to its usual color perception or by our perception that there was probably a mineral nutrition issue because that affects the pigment composition of the leaves and other factors like that. And they also used this way back in the campaign against marijuana planting in California to do overflight on ag crops and look for anomalies in the vegetation cover and go up. There's a little circle down there in that field of corn that isn't reflecting the way the corn does. And perhaps we should go down and check that out. So it actually had some law enforcement functions as well. But I will listen with interest and see if we can explain the botany of infrared reflectivity from outer space. And related to that, like I, that. Think, <laughs> I think in a, new, in a future show, I would really like to to get a little more into how minerals are taken up by plants mm -hmm. and what they're used for and okay. how they they are you know because i think it was the fact that that mineral, different minerals were being taken up and that that was changed the lighting or something but anyway yeah, ask yeah. for a future show for sure. no, no. Show. Well, so i can tell you as a as an owner of a nursery and one with training in this Soil science and nutrition is probably the most complicated thing we talk about, and it's probably the subject of greatest misinformation out there in the social media. When someone tells you to pour baking soda on the ground, my <laughs> reaction is that's sodium bicarbonate that has some adverse effects if you do that. So when you see that, or Epsom salts or whatever, they can have some positive effects, some negative effects, and it's important to know that. So yes, excellent topic for a future show is how to feed, how not to feed, what to listen to, and what to ignore. We've got a great opportunity for you to plant some trees. You want to get some exercise, join with a wonderful group of people. Well, Tree Davis would like you to help us plant young trees along the Russell Boulevard bike path. If you drive along Russell Boulevard, as I do every day, you will see many, many, many new trees that have been planted there for three or four different kinds of oaks that we're planting. And we're going all the way down from the end of Russell to the, all across the, the, along the university property. We've already planted quite a number. There's another batch to be planted. You can help. You will be digging tree holes and planting trees and pounding support stakes. You would meet this Saturday on Russell Boulevard bike path where Russell and Portage Bay East meet. Parking can be found on Portage Bay East or on Ellendale. Give yourself enough time to park and walk over where you'll see a group of volunteers. We've been getting great turnout at these events. We can always use more people. Start promptly at 9 a.m. All volunteers must wear a mask and bring their own work gloves, water, snacks, sun protection, and wear closed-toed shoes. You wouldn't think you'd have to say that, but you do. All volunteers must maintain six feet of distance as much as possible, and we kindly ask, the volunteers who are feeling ill in any form wait until they're fully recovered to participate in Tree Davis events. For information on, about this event on Saturday, January 29th at 9 a.m., goes till about noon, or any of the other upcoming tree plantings, and we've got a bunch of them coming up through the course of this winter and spring, just go to treedavis.org and click on the event calendar. 
We have a lot of things to talk about. I want to jump right in with one that I think is going to probably run over a few shows, but let's try this. It's a message from Kim. Oh, by the way, if people want to send us questions, where do they send it, Don? DavisGardenShow at gmail.com. Great. And Kim did that, in fact. And she says, hello, Don and Lois. Love your show. And year after year, I get so much out of it. I wanted to get some advice for how my husband and I might convert this part of our yard to an edible and ornamental garden. And she sent some photos. Thank you for the pictures. Yeah, great pictures. Thank you. The neighborhood is in the Sierra foothills, about four miles from the edge of Folsom Lake, at 300-foot elevation. It's a zone 9. The tract neighborhood from 1990. This is south-facing and slightly east. The wind rips through this channel from the east to west so much that in five years we have lost two fences. Yeah, recently, familiar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. recently and sadly, we took out a 40-year-old redwood where you now see a pile of shredded wood. It needed to go. We are hoping to improve the concrete-like soil. I left the fall debris collected from other parts of our yard in the far right corner a few years ago to decompose. Also, we tried planter boxes last year with okay, but not great results. So to get to my question, where do I begin? Mm -hmm. My husband is eager to rent a rototiller where I'm inclined to find a recipe or something, cover crop or compost to improve the the soil and prepare it. We both are thinking of planter boxes may be the way to go. Also, should we let the redwood chips decompose or remove them or what? We thank you in advance and we'll happily follow up and share back to this wonderful community. Signed, Kim and Mike. Well, thank you. And those are great pictures. Uh, they show a, a great potential. I always hate to take a tree out. I mean, it, I've had to do it on my farm and it makes me sad, but any invariably within a couple of days of walking by where the tree has come out, I'm already thinking of ideas for what to replace it with and going, oh, look, sunlight here. I haven't had sunlight here for ages. So this is a great opportunity for you. Uh, Folsom soils are very interesting. And so I do suggest that you explore your soil a little bit and kind of ask locally. Probably the cooperative extension folks, the master gardeners on your side of the valley will have either some information or a lead on what your soil type is like. I'm saying this because many years ago with the nursery association, we donated trees for Arbor Day contests all over the valley. And I personally delivered one out to Folsom for a tree planting at a school. If they had not had the whole pre-dug with a, uh, a you know a bulldozer, basically a bobcat, we wouldn't have been able to do a thing because there was so much rock and gravel. Uh, my understanding is that Folsom soils vary quite a bit because of the years of placer mining went on further uphill, and there are some very different soil types. So you need to know what you're working with first and foremost. You need to do a drainage test, which is where you dig a hole, you fill it with water, and you check it. And if it hasn't drained out in 24 hours, you do have a drainage problem, in which case you almost have to go to raise planter boxes. Folks in the Natomas region of Sacramento, when it was subdivided, would do this drainage test and they'd call me up and they'd say, well, I think a quarter inch has evaporated off the top, (laughs) but the rest is still sitting there. I said, well, you can't plant in that. So you need to do a drainage test to make sure that your soil has at least reasonable drainage. And it wouldn't be a bad idea uh, to get a soil test done. And you can read online, you can find companies, an example of one, I'm not saying endorsing them, but just one example is one you can look at is a company called Sunland Analytical. They're in Sacramento. On their website, they'll show you how to take a soil sample, how to send it in, and what you would be testing for. Uh, The purpose of that would be to see if you have any 
oh, high salt content, uh, weirdly high pH, any particular deficiencies or excesses of phosphorus, potassium, any trace elements you might need to add. That's the first starting point for adding anything other than nitrogen is to get a soil test done. It's not expensive. It's something that, again, the folks at Cooperative Extension can give you some pointers on, but I think that would be one thing I would do if I were in a brand new area or doing a brand new garden of some sort. Well, does the soil test tell you how clayey or loamy or how dense your soil is? Sort of. They give you a printout, which you can then copy and send to us, and we can happily discuss it on the air because it's pretty technical. Uh, You can also do a shake test. You can take a good sample of soil, put it in a jar of water, shake it, and watch how it settles out. And I can assure you, if you go online, you'll see YouTube videos that show you exactly how to do this, and it'll kind of of settle itself out as to whether it's uh, more of a loam, has more clay, has more sand content. So that's something, just a visual inspection. Also, people who know garden soil. Uh, if I if I had just bought a house and I hadn't even done a soil test or anything and there was adequate moisture in the soil, I'd walk out there with a shovel, dig some up and just rub it in my hand and see what I'm dealing with. See whether it's something that slimes in my hand or breaks apart, whether it's got some density to it, like you squeeze it and it holds together or it crumbles and so forth. Try to get a sense for your soil texture. But let's get to the big marital dispute first, because this comes <laughs> up, this comes up quite regularly. Rototilling, Don, rototilling. Rototilling or not, to rototill or not. Okay, it's okay. I know this goes against everything we've said on the Davis Garden Show for I don't know how many years now. It's okay to go out and get a rototiller, spread a couple inches of compost on the ground, and rototill that in once. And once. I, once. And I guarantee once. you've just damaged your soil structure. You know, you've broken it up. You've broken the soil web. Um, and we'll get to the purpose for this in a moment. It, a question I had some time ago, as we all started getting into no-till and letting the soil build itself, I guess is the way I would put it, which is the other approach, is how long does that rototilling or, or plowing or whatever, how long does that damage to the soil structure that you've done persist? In other words, how long does it take the soil to rebuild the soil web and all that kind of thing? And all I have in answer to that is an offhand comment by a soils person, uh, secondhand from a master gardener. He said he, I had him ask that question at an event in Yolo County. And her answer was a year or two. Okay. So if you wrote it till the soil and you do that structural damage and you promise never to do it again, <laughs> and you put compost on the surface, you go ahead and turn this stuff in to create these seed beds and make your garden, you know, this is your chance to reshape it and do a little grading if you're going to do that. It's an opportunity to pull soil up to make a raised bed, you know, working with your existing soil as a starting point for the raised bed. That's all great. That'll all work very well. Um, and then just don't do it again after that, because every time you do it, you break up that soil structure, you damage those macro pores that the worms are creating and all that kind of stuff. So you only do it for one main purpose, which is to make a soil that has better, and here's a highly technical term, tilth, better structure to your feel. It really, what it does, is it creates a better seed bed. You know, this is one of the reasons row crop farmers, even in no-till operations or low-till operations, will still often till the zone where they're direct seeding to get a looser soil for the seedlings to come up in, to break the surface so it doesn't crust over, to get a little more organic material right in that little zone, at least for part of a season. So we generally don't want you doing this. We don't want you turning stuff in and breaking up the soil all the time. This is the first time. This is your chance to regrade the garden a little bit. This is your chance to maybe make some raised beds. So he can go ahead and do that if he wants to. And he'll put a couple of inches of good quality compost, probably 
something you're buying by the bag rather than some stuff that's coming in bulk and being dumped in the driveway. And the stuff in a bag will probably have some organic source of nitrogen in it. That's just the way it works these days, either some manure or some slow-acting organic fertilizer. That'll help jumpstart your seedlings that first season and get them going. So it's okay to do that, but in the long run, your best way to build soil is to have it incorporate stuff itself at the rate at which that stuff will incorporate. What that means is put that compost down, water it, walk away. Let the stuff filter down in. Let the worms come up into the compost and go back down. Come in and go back down. Let the mycelia from the soil organisms grow up into the compost and start breaking them down and disintegrating them. It will break down and enter the soil, if you will, incorporate itself at the pace that is appropriate to the soil moisture, the temperature, and the microbial activity that you have. So that would be amending the soil the natural way, the way that would happen if a whole bunch of leaves fell off a deciduous tree six to 12 inches deep and just lay there through the winter and decomposed. The way you would get, if you spread those those chips from your ground up redwood around on the soil and let them decompose at their own pace, that's all fine to do even with those as long as you're not incorporating them. Incorporating stuff can lead to issues. But in the case of jump-starting the vegetable garden, he's welcome to go out and get the rototiller, buy a bunch of bags of stuff, including some manure or something with manure, and get started that way. Most people are finding that raised planters have some real advantages. You can plant earlier, a little bit earlier, because the soil warms up faster. You can create this soil that's just a little, little higher in organic material. People like that. They like the way it feels, gets the seedlings off to a faster start, and so on. It also from a design standpoint, kind of separates the vegetable garden in its own area. And I often, when I was helping people design this, I would say, okay, these are your raised beds. Now on the edge, plant some rosemary and lavender, plant an herb garden in front of it. So it looks like part of your landscape and actually can make a very attractive part of the garden when you do that. The raised planter's defined area over there. It's got something in front of it that's just from a design standpoint, making it more aesthetic. And this gives you a chance to plant some of the flowering perennials and shrubs that draw beneficial insects and make the garden easier to care for in the long run. So I think the raised planters have some advantages. We've certainly talked about the disadvantages over the years and the main disadvantage being that water runs right through them down to the native soil below. And so they tend to have more complicated irrigation management uh, issues. But other than that, raised planters are popular and have a lot of advantages. I would just say, try not to go much higher than a foot you know, when I see people with 24, 30, 36 inch raised planters, those are the ones where by the middle of the summer, we're having some pretty complicated conversations about how to irrigate. Uh, whereas when it's just a foot, well, even a pepper plant, even an eggplant will get its roots down through your fancy fluffy soil into the native soil below. Uh, much deeper than that, you start running into watering challenges. Okay, so lots of questions here from me. Uh, looking at the picture, there's a house, no doors, but some windows, mm -hmm. and it is it is a south-facing wall. Yeah. So that, yeah. that, that wall's going to get hot. And then uh, she does have one raised planter there that I can see. Yep. Smartly, yep. she has not put that next to the house because you never want to do that because that encourages damage to the house. So here's my question on that one. If I were to make the raised planter like three feet away from the house, there would be enough room for me to have the path on that side sure. of the planter. Sure. That would make sense, wouldn't it, Don? 
That's one option. It, it would yeah, make but, it a little yeah. little less hot because it would be three feet away from that reflective hot wall. You know, if it were mine, I would deal with the reflective hot wall by planting something near the wall that would help reduce that. So, for example, um, Tuscan blue rosemary. My Tuscan blue rosemary, which is in full glorious bloom right now and covered with bees because it's the only thing blooming in late January at the moment, um, is four feet, five feet tall. It's an upright growing rosemary and it's dark green. So it would help reduce that glare from the wall. And it would give you the same kind of rosemary that you can use in cooking. And it would be drawing beneficials. And I'm told even little songbirds like rosemary for whatever reason. Um, so a couple of those, maybe uh, if you- How all, close? You How can close plant, to the wall? It can be right against the wall. It can be a foot out so that it has room to, for the roots to develop, but it could be, you can clip it. It's an interesting variety. So it's actually one of my favorite rosemaries is Tuscan blue because of the relatively upright, sort of upsweeping growth habit, you could prune it like a hedge if you wish to. And it would be there to be pretty and draw beneficials and something you can use in cooking. And you could do other things like that. The other, the kitchen herbs in general can take extreme heat. And there's not many other things that like the reflected heat off of a wall. Pomegranates can take it. I mean, there are some other examples of things that you could grow there, but the rosemary would have the advantage of helping reduce that glare and reduce the heat load on the wall, as well as being something edible and pretty. So it's kind of a dual purpose landscape slash herb garden plant. Well, having interviewed a contractor and a house expert I would uh, I would recommend that you make sure that your house has been recently painted and then understand that if you put something right next to it and you ever ha- want to paint the house, you're going to have to move that thing. Yep. Um, so, okay. uh, you know, no, no, I was no. like... Rosemary is replaceable. That's yeah. no big deal. And a, a trellis with some uh, scarlet runner beans or something okay. like that. That that's because you just move it out. But if you wanted to plant something permanently, I would I would keep it away from the house. Really, uh, we we have had situations where we shouldn't have planted so close. Anyway, back to the the uh, beds. You're going to if if he rototills. Mm-hmm. Next, going to be turning things up. When the soil is turned over like that, you can move it around. Wouldn't yeah. it make sense to scrape some of that turned up fluffy stuff and use that in the planter boxes? Yes. And that means your your the backyard level would be a little bit lower in the middle of the backyard than it is next to the house, and that's fine. Um, but that way, you could have you could have your planter boxes be taller and still be native soil. That it would be absolutely preferred to bringing in something from out, you know, just to fill the planter boxes. And we, we deliver bag goods to people who are doing raised planters and filling them entirely with the stuff from the, from mm. the bags. And that's fine, but I want them to understand when they do that, they're basically growing things in a very large pot. And that means when I'm telling you folks to water really thoroughly once a week, you can't do that with those. You have to water raised planters with light, fluffy soil in them daily actually seems to work best for most people that have raised planters where they, where they imported faster draining soil. If you can possibly rototill back there, and like Lois is saying, rake some of the soil up and have that be the predominant constituent of your raised planters, which you then lighten up with some compost the first time and then top dress with compost in the future, you've created one of the, the best of both worlds at that point because you have soil that is predominantly native soil. So the roots will work their way through it and into the entirely native soil below. Your tomatoes will run right through there without any difficulty. There won't be a significant 
uh, interface between one soil texture and another. And that's what we're always trying to avoid. We're going to come back to this topic a little later in the show, of where you have a, a heavily amended soil up against native soil. Roots have difficulty penetrating into the native soil. If it's a gradient, Excellent. So that would create some low channel areas, which will now become drainage areas. Plan for that. If you're doing this, make sure you don't do it by accident. Make sure you know where the water is going to go. Probably water coming down from a downspout that needs to go somewhere. Probably going to be water you know, outflowing from your vegetable planters when you run it too long. Needs to go somewhere. Plan for that and make use of it. Have it go near a tree or something nearby uh, and, and be aware of that. And then you can, the, the bark that has been created by grinding up the redwood can be a path can yeah, be excellent yeah. for the path and you can put nicer looking finer bark on top of that if you wish to so again we want to reiterate something we've tried to say repeatedly bark is for paths compost and mulch are for compost is for gardens and the reason for that is the bark true bark uh, if it's really the kind of stuff you buy in a bag labeled as bark is in fact hydrophobic so it doesn't break down quickly that's good for a path. It's not so great for the garden. So I'd love to see a couple inches of bark on top of that redwood stuff that was pulverized as your main walking area. It'll be kind of spongy at first, and then we'll slowly settle. And have you take the excess soil and create the raised beds and then compost on top of those raised beds once or twice a year. Whenever you see a good deal on some bales of compost, just go ahead and add some. You can't really overdo it if you top dress with it, because as I've said, it will incorporate at the rate that is appropriate to the soil's bacterial activity, moisture, and temperature status. As opposed to when you turn a whole bunch in and the soil has to deal with all this sudden input, uh, what happens, by the way, when you do that, anytime you add any weird input to soil, the microbes that break down whatever it is, it can be milk whey, it can be a byproduct of something, it can be shavings, it can be this, that, or the other, Whatever microorganisms break that down, of course, increase very rapidly. Our soils are very microbially active and they, their population spikes until they break it all down. They come back to the previous equilibrium. Uh, so it will take care of all that stuff that's incorporated. But during the meanwhile, if you were to incorporate only partially composted cellulose, such as shavings, sawdust, ground up roots, things like that, it's also tying up nitrogen and other things like sulfur at the time that it's breaking down. So if you plant right into that, things don't do well. And we get this all the time. I took out a tree, I ground out the roots, and I planted a new tree in that spot. And a year later, it's not doing anything. So, well, you need to feed it. You'll have to add more nitrogen because of the fact that the soil is breaking that down. So I think you're on the right track. I think he gets to get his rototiller. I think you get to take advantage of that to make some raised planters. Be sure to create your paths in between them. And since you have this opportunity, plant lots of cool flowering things around there, herbs and flowers and perennials. You've even got room for a couple of small trees in there that wouldn't shade your garden too much if you're interested in some small fruit trees or something like that. And I would suggest you invest in a soil test. The one thing the soil test will not likely test for is nitrogen because they really can't accurately test for it. They'll often make recommendations for that and for the other trace elements and macronutrients. And I'm more than happy if you get that done for you to just go ahead and scan it and email it off to us at davisgardenshow at gmail.com because it would be a good opportunity for us to review very quickly with people the information you get when you get a soil test done, because it's a little complicated, but incredibly useful information. Thanks really a lot for this. Great pictures and very timely topic. I'll bet there's a lot of people out there thinking, wow, it's sunny. I think I'll plant a vegetable garden this year. <laughs> Where do I begin? Should I get a rototiller? <laughs> so the, the takeaway that I would get from this is 
decide where your planter boxes are going to be, mm -hmm. build them and fill them with the native soil. If you have, if the, if the planter box you have right now is filled with like fluffy stuff, hey, that can be dispersed into yeah. the mixed in, you know, dump it out, rototill it in and, and, and put things back. Second is make sure that your you know where your paths are going to be so that you can do things that aren't going to, you know, that are fine for paths and not so great for gardens. And then the third thing is it looks like now from the pictures that you've sent, it looks like you do not have any existing bushes there. So you are probably not going to have white crown sparrow problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I got a question. Uh, I got a question for you. Does putting out a bird feeder, increase white crown sparrows no good excellent we can bird, move on. bird, <laughs> bird feeders uh i mean white my crown sparrows eat seeds off the ground so the if ground. you hang something up there it's not going to do anything plus or minus well okay. unless you get really messy birds that throw seed onto the ground then right. like jays mockingbirds those kinds of things goldfinches <laughs> yeah. house finches yeah. sloppy eaters we need more we need more fastidious birds in the garden well, it's not that they're sloppy it's that they're picky and a lot uh -huh. of people buy these um, bird seed mixes, which have those little round black things that I've never found a bird that likes to eat. Mm. Um, and so they'll they'll pick it out and throw it away, pick it out and throw it away. Oh, there's a good one. And it's, <laughs> it gets so messy. So I, I switched over completely to chopped sunflower seeds. Mm -hmm. And it's just the, the meat of the seeds. It's not the hull. And they're cut in half, so they aren't ever going to grow. Mm -hmm. And every every species that eats seeds really loves them. I think I heard somewhere, maybe from you, that you really do get what you pay for with with bird seed mixes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that, actually, that's not true because some of these bird seed mixes they have great graphics on the packaging, <laughs> oh, well, <yeah>. and <laughs> and they convince people that this is the best thing. And yeah, now exactly. it no yeah. chops sunflower yeah. seeds. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's and called it's called medium chip. You can order it at uh, any of the hardware stores. Yep. Okay, that was a great <laughs> question. So that that was a question yeah. about soil amending, and so that brings us to another question that I think I sent over to you about amending soil. Yes, you did. And um, shall I read the opening bit? Yes. Okay. Uh, when you amend the soil, you create a soil with different texture in that planting hole. At the interface of the two soil textures, you create problems with water movement as well as with root penetration between those two soils. The roots stay within the amended soil zone and don't penetrate as readily or quickly out into the native soil. So the tree is anchored more poorly, among other issues. So this came up with a question about planting trees, but the question also came up almost at the same time in a native plant group about someone wanting to know about amending for native plants, which you just don't do. I mean, that can lead to all kinds of problems. Now, you might ask yourself, um, you always, you know, your grandpa or your great uncle always amended the soil for vegetables and got great results. And why should we not do that? You can. I mean, I, I want to say this. It is very successful for people to turn in, you know, manure every year like grandpa did and, and uh, mend the soil and do all that. We are. We have told you earlier in the program that you're damaging the soil structure when you do that. You're also creating an interface between amended soil and unamended soil. For an annual crop, does that matter all that much? Probably not. Does it lead to better or worse results with tomatoes, peppers, eggplant? 
arguably either way, honestly, because it really depends more on the nutrients that are added than what was done in terms of the soil structure. But for planting a woody plant, that is to say a shrub or a tree in particular, we have decades of research that tell us first that amending the soil did not help with establishment of the trees. That was the first research that was done before I was a student. So this was a while ago uh, where they would, you might wonder how they do that. All right, you take a whole bunch of the same kind of tree out into your, your field planting experiment and you plant some just in the native soil and some with amended soil. And they also did some with just the nitrogen of the soil amendment instead of the compost portion to see what the results were. And then a few years later, you dig them up and you see what's happened to the roots. So yes, you're killing all those trees. You're sacrificing them for the greater good. And what they invariably found was that the root systems of trees that had been planted into amended soil did not penetrate as rapidly or effectively out into the native soil. And of course, that can be a problem. What they actually do is they continue to sort of circle within the amended soil. The bathtub effect is the term I've heard some researchers give. You don't want, and here's the thing, the tops grew just fine. So looking at the trees, you would look at these three sets of trees, it was pretty clear quickly that nitrogen was the thing that was making the biggest difference in terms of top growth. So a lot of the results that people were getting when, when I was a teenager and selling a bag of planting mix with every tree that went out, because that's what my boss told me to do, it was the plant food that was in that bag of planting mix that was giving the primary reaction that the customer was seeing. More to the point, though, if they all looked pretty much the same and were all growing seemingly about the same, what's the problem? Well, if the root system isn't getting out as the top is growing, those are the trees that fall over. Those become an anchorage issue, a safety issue. Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott, who we've referenced many times before, she's a horticulture professor up at Washington State. She runs the uh, Garden Professor's blog on Facebook and has written some great books about garden myths. I want to give her credit because what I'm about to read is a direct quote from her on this issue. Roots react much in the same way in this amended soil as they do in containers. They circle the edge of the interface and they grow back into that more hospitable environment of the planting hole. The roots do not establish in the native soil, eventually resulting in reduced growth rates and hazard status as the crown growth, the top growth, exceeds the root ball diameter. You can see how that might become a safety issue, I don't know, 10 or 20 years down the road. That's my addition there. Soil water movement is problematic as well. Amended backfill, in other words, soil that has compost in it, has markedly different characteristics than the surrounding native soil. It's more porous. Water will wick away to the finer textured native soil. So in the summer, moisture within the planting hole will be depleted by the plant, but not replaced by the water that's held more tightly in the nearby native soil. This results in water stress to the plant unless the planting hole itself is kept irrigated, which is costly and often unrealistic. During wet seasons, water will move quickly through the amended soil only to be held back by the more slowly draining native soil. And this resulting bathtub effect wherein water accumulates in the planting hole, floods the roots, and eventually can even kill the plant. And finally, this is real important. If you do happen to amend, keep this in mind. All organic material eventually decomposes. If you've incorporated one quarter or one half organic matter by volume, within a few years, you'll have a sunken garden in your landscape. This only exacerbates the flooding problem during the wet conditions. So no scientific studies show any measurable benefits of soil amendment except in containerized plant production. So out in the garden, it has no benefit. Plants grown in native soil consistently 
show better root establishment and more vigorous growth. Only one study ever reported no negative effects of amending soil with organic matter, but there are no benefits either. So when you consider the cost of materials and the labor needed to incorporate soil amendments, as she concludes, it's difficult to justify the practice. Now, I was told this as a student in the 1970s, and it's been consistently affirmed by research since then. Nevertheless, you still go into garden centers, you still talk to master gardeners even sometimes, which always surprises me a little bit, who recommend adding amendment. It's, it's just people really seem to want to. And part of it is that feel that the soil has when you've incorporated compost into it. It feels looser and has that tilth I was describing before. So for a seedling bed, for vegetables, I guess it's okay. But we, it's not only not okay for woody plants, it's detrimental. And for trees in particular, and in the case of native plants, uh, what it would do is with that water relations issue, since they're already quite vulnerable, typically to phytophthora, crown rot, water molds attacking them under conditions where the soil is saturated, you would inadvertently be creating conditions where the soil might be saturated right around the crown. So it's le- likely to lead to a higher mortality rate with California native plants. And I should expand that to plants from similar rainfall climates as California. So Mediterranean plants, plants from South Africa, plants from Australia that we're selling. And that happens to be the great list of plants for low water landscapes. So for Zurich or, or Zeriscape or you know, drought tolerant landscaping, we're using plants that are a little vulnerable to those water molds, to that phytophthora. And unfortunately, amending the soil uh, around the root crown that way can lead to higher failure rates among those plant groups. I want to bring attention to the difference between what you just talked about, where you're digging a hole and making a bucket, mm-hmm. compared to it's okay for Mike to rototill the entire backyard. Yep. And the, the thing is that in the bucket, you have a zone that is, you know, left to right or in and out. When you're doing the whole backyard, you may have a layer of lighter stuff above the bottom, the lower stuff, but things can, worms can come up and down and stuff like that. Whereas there, earthworms aren't going to get into your little bucket and, and break down that, that barrier. Not enough to, not enough to make the tree safe, I guess is what it comes down to. Uh, again, in the long run, their best bet for their vegetable garden is to just dump a couple inches of compost and all the leaves that fall down off their tree and grow cover crops and things like that. I mean, what I do on my property is the cover crops are the basic way I amend the soil, and it does it naturally. Um, you can, putting stuff on the surface is always good. And as I tell the people who come in in August with their, their first year with their raised planters, and they're having all kinds of watering problems, said, the good news is this will get better. Over time, you can turn what you've done here, this weird potting soil-ish substance, into an actual soil by planting tap-rooted things, by planting cover crops and chopping them off, by cutting off the plants instead of pulling them out. All those things we talk about all the time on the show here about making macro pores, about, you know, the worms, if you put leaves on the surface, the worms will come up. Just the process of them coming up makes macro pores. So you're, you can eventually, after a couple of years, you'll find, hey, it's getting easier. I can actually go three days between waterings instead of having to water every single day. You can gradually improve the water retention of the soil. You can build up the nutrient status and so forth. And that's really the best way to do it in the long run because it's doing it as i keep saying at the rate at which is appropriate to the soil based on your conditions wherever you're listening Uh, if you try and do it all at once well you're just creating the equivalent of a sort of a weird potting soil 
And so we just want to stay away from that. But we especially stay away from it when we're talking about trees, shrubs, native plants, things like that. Does it matter for a daylily? Who cares? No, it doesn't make any difference. If you want to amend the soil for a tough-rooted perennial, I mean, you're, you don't have no particular reason to do so. So it's an unnecessary expense, but it's not harmful in the long run, except for the possibility of inadvertently creating a low spot. So keep that in mind. But it is hard to get people to break that habit. I mean, I was at a nursery association meeting in the 1980s when we had one of these researchers come in and give us a great presentation. And one of the older nursery guys there who would have been in his 60s or 70s then got up and started kind of yelling at the researcher like, well, I've got years of experience and I always turn this in and I know, you know, it's been giving me good results. There's nothing like a good angry gardener who's being told that his um, empirical evidence based on his anecdotal experiences somehow trumps, you know, full on research project. But that's what we got. And it was very challenging in part because tie-in sales at nurseries are real basic. You know, I was trained when I sold you three or four shrubs, I was supposed to say, did you need a bag of planting mix to go along with that, ma'am? And half the time they go, oh, I don't know. Is that a good idea? And we were supposed to sell it to them. So essentially, these researchers were saying to us, all that tie-in sale you're doing is not only not beneficial, it's harmful. Well, some of these old guys didn't take that real well. But over time, this information has made its way into the public and the master gardeners and those of us that are out on the airwaves. We hope we're making a difference. So when you say that the nitrogen in that amendment was good to mm-hmm. plant with, so, so you, would you like take a little handful of a, a something, some fertilizer or something and, and mix it into the hole? Is, is, is that, uh, is that reasonable? It. You can incorporate an organic fertilizer. You can top dress with a conventional fertilizer. I would be concerned about using a conventional faster acting fertilizer right around the roots because it could burn them. Organic fertilizers don't do that because they have to break down through various processes. Nitrogen generally is beneficial to the young tree. Um, It's not essential. It'll probably grow a little faster if you do fertilize it. Young fruit trees, young citrus, people do like to fertilize. Uh, So what we're saying is that you will see the top growth that people were seeing from soil amendments was primarily coming from the nitrogen. Um, it, it does not affect the ability of the roots to penetrate into the surrounding soil. So as far as that goes, it's not making the trees potentially unsafe. Well, maybe we could break people of that need to amend by giving them a placebo and, yes. and saying, take a handful of this and, and scatter it in there uh, and, and, like, and that'll do it. You know? There's enough, enough of that out there already, but what we can do, let's say, let's say you get home and I don't know, your husband went out and bought a bag of something to turn into the soil, spread it on the ground around the tree after it's planted. Yeah. Use it as a top dressing. And then with the nitrogen that's in there will feed the tree and all that organic stuff that's in there will break down and improve the soil. I do that all the time. I even do it in container plants. I'll take, you know, planter mix, pot, compost, whatever I've got, uh, and I'll just spread it around plants. I especially like to do it right as we're getting hot because I find that, you know, we're mulching the plant, increasing the water retention. And almost always these products have a little bit of nitrogen in them. At least some of them have a lot nowadays. So you tend to see a response to that as well. And you said that if the compost decomposes, then the the soil level will sink. Yes. Is the converse true? If you are planting a, a shrub or a tree or a bush, and you're using native soil, do you plant it exactly where you want it or do you still plant it an inch or two high? 
because it's going to compact back down when you dig when you turn the soil and and dig the hole and take it out and set the tree in there and backfill and do all that stuff you fluffed up the soil a little bit it expanded it a bit and so it will settle and you should plan for that and we always want plants up a little bit when we're done so when i'm planting a tree i'm I'm putting in a lot of trees on my property right now we're getting ready for some pretty major citrus installation here as well we're going to make sure that where those tree trees are is graded two to three inches above the surrounding soil to allow for settling and then some. In other words, I want them up a little bit forever. I want them graded up slightly. So water always drains away from their crown. And I can figure that I'll lose an inch just by settling because of having fluffed up the soil when we plant them. And uh, so I'm going to figure on two inches is basically what it comes down to. So yes, plant high. We always like to say this, plant a little bit high. One, two, three, the plant, not you. Ha, ha, ha. There we go. <laughs> Don. Standard joke. <laughs> You're showing your 70s. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we have a, a few miscellaneous questions here. Let me see hey. if I can get to the right one. Um, well, let's do this one. This seems reasonably similar. This is from Kathy and says, hi, Don and Lois. I use these inexpensive food covers to protect seedlings. And what she's showing us is those those um, mesh umbrella-like things that you use when you have a picnic. Yes, and there's no, there's no stick in the middle, yeah. but it's just, yeah. And it covers a plant, as long yeah. as the plant's not too tall. Pop-up mesh um, food cover tent umbrella. She sent us a link to Amazon. Yeah. This is great. And, and there's another one that I've used in the past. It's a great excuse for buying strawberries is you buy strawberries and you save the little strawberry baskets and you go out and just flip those over on a young seedling just as it's emerged or or just at the time you plant mm-hmm. the seed, if it's something that, I don't know, certain kinds of birds might be digging up and eating the seeds of. Mm-hmm. And you just leave them on there. Just try to remember as soon as the, you know, the seedling is pushing up against it to remove it. And I found when my previous bird problem prior to the current one was magpies, magpies would come along in my garden it was kind of fun to watch but uh, extremely frustrating and they'd hop along and you'd have a little bean seedling there with just just its two you know cotyledon leaves and the first of the true leaves coming and i'd watch as the magpie would yank it out of the ground drop it move on to the next one yank it out of the ground drop it find the worm that was disturbed which i guess is what it was really after move on to the next one i had one year i had to replant squash plants several times and i could not figure out why i'd keep going out and finding these withered little seedlings next to where they had been sprouted in the morning when i left for you go off to school go off to work come back withered on the ground who's pulling up my seedlings and dropping them there magpies so the simple answer to that was flip over a strawberry basket settle it into the soil a little bit just be sure to remove it when the plant starts to push up against it but these are great these are pretty inexpensive and they call them pop-up mesh screen food cover tent umbrella (laughs) (laughs) a great name um yeah so you know the the uh anything that you put on like a strawberry basket is going to be um you might have too much wind. Yes. And so you can take little bamboo skewers, you know, like you like you skewer things to for the barbecue or something. Shish-kabob. And you can just put a couple shish kebab skewers in to hold it down so the wind can't take it. 
or the magpies can't flip it off. Yes. <laughs> anyway, here's a few more things. She says, I, she says, I also make little chicken wire cages to protect seedlings. Yes. And she says, see the attachment. And the PVC pipe tunnel idea came from this book, and she has an, a link to that. Yep. The grass is winter rye that I purchased from your store and use as a cover crop for my melons and squash. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Yeah, there's a variety of techniques you can use. I finally, because of my extraordinary frustration here about getting certain things established in containers, went to our local feed store and purchased a pretty dense mesh uh, wire product. It it's, uh, looks like it's for gophers primarily, and I'm just fabricating little cloches, essentially, that I can just stick in the ground, half an inch into the ground until the little seedlings come up. And her use of cover crop in this picture is great. And this is something that the first caller, first caller, first letter we dealt with uh, might look at, and maybe I'll see if I can post this picture. She just took annual ryegrass seed and for her garden area, seeded it in. It looks like she's actually mowed it, which uh, does work. Annual ryegrass doesn't build nitrogen. It doesn't enrich the soil that way, but it has aggressive roots. And then the top being annual, once we get into the warm weather, the, the ryegrass basically dies down. You can spray it if you want. You can cover it with a tarp. You can do any number of things to kill off the top if you prefer to do that. Uh, I just ordered a very large tarp for part of my farm, a, a silage tarp. 25 feet by 125 feet, which three of us are going to spread out over the weeds over the next within the next couple of days, because I want to plant three to four weeks out in that area with some some uh, cut flowers that we're doing. And so I'm just going to use that to kill the weeds. If you exclude light, you can take your cover crop and disintegrate it down into the roots and the roots will decompose. And you've essentially created soil that way. So cover crops, we, we beat on that here because it's such a simple way to build your soil without having to spend a lot of money without getting into soil chemistry or anything you just put something there you're choosing what's going to grow there instead of just letting weeds grow there and you're making sure it's something that builds the soil one way or another so if this is the end of january don we haven't Indeed. done the calendar pictures yet well that's so good news. the good news is that in january um there aren't that many flowers but there's a few really cool ones so you've got the calendar well you didn't even put sarcococca on here because the flowers are so tiny you can't can't barely see them. I did get a good picture of sarcococca in bloom. Finally, it's uh, it's one of those plants where you're walking by and you're smelling it and you're looking all around to try and figure out where that fragrance is coming from. Like osmanthus, the sweet olive, like certain other flowers, the volatile organic compounds in sarcococca drift many feet yards away from the plant itself. And the flower is pretty insignificant. It's about a quarter to a half inch white and barely has any petals. So it's mainly just putting all this fragrant stuff out into the atmosphere to try and draw pollen pollinators. Um, so it's not really showy, but yes, it's blooming in January. What else do we have in January? Well, um, Virginia is one that I don't usually see around here. Is that is that common these days? It is. It was, I think, one of the Arboretum All-Stars. Um, Virginia, it's B-E-R-G-E-N-I-A. It blooms in the winter. It starts blooming sometimes as early as late December, typically through January and into February. It has the amusing common name of Pig Squeak. <laughs> pig Squeak, because I was informed by the former superintendent of the Arboretum if you fold the leaf over in your hand and rub it back and forth, it'll sound like pigs 
schooling. I don't know if this is something I'd pass along to the kids in your household, but it's kind of entertaining. And it has this lovely pink flower in the wintertime, and it grows and blooms in the shade, which, again, makes it rather unusual. So that's mm -hmm. Virginia, B-E-R-G-E-N-I-A. And then we have two poppies. We have the Iceland poppy and the California poppy, which is Escholtsia. Yeah, the Schultzia californica and the Iceland poppy is a true poppy in the genus Papaver. Uh, both of those are great midwinter bloom. And I, even though even though they're they're considered perennials in other climates, here both of them are grown as annuals, tend to function as annuals. I will say, California poppies, if you cut them back when they're past their peak of bloom, getting into April or May, you'll very commonly get another bloom out of the mid to late summer. Those same plants will tend to bloom again in the fall and winter, the second, sometimes even a third year. So California poppy can be uh, described as a short-lived perennial. Iceland poppy, it's an annual in our climate, anywhere in the Sacramento Valley, anywhere where you get as hot as we do, they're pretty much done by April or May. But they have these amazing bright yellow, bright orange flowers that bob in the breeze because they have these long naked stems, hence the name Nuda Kali, which is their species name, Papaver Nuda, naked Kali stem. And unlike other poppies, which have leaves on their flower stems, these don't. So the flowers almost appear to be floating there. And I can tell you at this time of year, I don't can't think of a flower that's more attractive to bees. So if you've got even native bees, European honeybees coming out on these great sunny days we're having in January, you have some California pop, or excuse me, well, they do too. But if you have some Iceland poppies out there, the bees will go nuts. They look as though they're getting drugged by them. It's entirely possible they are poppies. <laughs> and then, of course, we have the, the typical winter flowers. We've got the narcissus and the violas and the, uh, the kale, which is not a flower, but it's certainly a pretty thing. And then my favorite for the winter is cyclamen. And that is not a, a, an annual plant. No, in spite of what most people think, uh, it's a bulb. It's uh, People plant them when they finish blooming when we start getting into the 80s pretty consistently and they think it's time to go dormant. People think they're done, think they're dying, so they just pull them out and throw them away. Um, again, as I've joked many times as a retailer, that's fine with me if you want to buy new ones every year, but they are a bulb and they're really just getting the trigger when it gets warm to go dormant. And so just leave them be. Uh, you can, if they bother you where they are because they look like they're dying or going dormant, you can dig them out of that pot, maybe shove them together in one another pot, water them once to settle the soil and stick them in the corner in the shade somewhere where they'll get watered more or less automatically somewhat through the summer. It doesn't really matter all that much. I have cyclamen bulbs that are six years old that are continuing to bloom year after year. They are a great garden plant, and there's still a lot of really cool varieties out there. And it is one of those things where you can sort of build up a collection of them. My front porch right now, I've gradually been sticking the miniature cyclamen into all the pots I have out on my front porch and going down my steps. Just each time I see a nice one, I just grab it and stick another one into the into a pot. I probably have 30 of these blooming right now, and they, they don't take any care from me whatsoever. And here's an interesting point. Hummingbirds go to the flowers quite regularly. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.